Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, and we are just off the most amazing 45 minutes with uh, Valentina's mom. And so, in all fairness, this feels a little bit less energetic and hopefully we can pull this off, right? Yeah. But that oh, was that's so- a great way to start my podcast. <laughs> Well, the last one was yours, too, in all fairness, and that was such a high. I, I, I think we can du- duplicate that, though, but you guys are going to have to help me a little Who's bit. Who's ready to okay. come down? Let's talk about depression. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Valentina, bring me up here. What do we got going on today? You are the person that will be leading the podcast, and you haven't done introductions of yourself yet, right? Yeah. So we've got to get an introduction from you, an introduction from uh, your two... Um, Co-stars. Co-stars. I like that. <laughs> I was going to say... Uh, compadres in crime but uh, <laughs> I like it I like it felt like a mixed metaphor okay, so Valentina okay so my name is Valentina I'm a third year medical student from Rocky Vista the southern Utah campus and today I'll be talking about depression and schizophrenia but all tied with a pretty bow of myelin by the way I even though I was telling you that it's a little bit of a, a down to come out of that last you know bench researchers have this great way of talking to us but in all fairness, didn't we see the same energy? Like, who was it that said, I get it now, I totally understand Valentina? Like that, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. energy and that excitement. Yep. And uh, we've got about a, a week left, and, and Valentina, obviously, uh, just been great having you on the rotation, the energy you bring, and how fun it is. Even though your mom is wonderful, and that was a wonderful podcast, I expect the same from you, okay? Okay, no Don't pressure. let me down. <laughs> <laughs> who else have you got here with you today? Oh, no, no, no. Valentina, what, what do you think you might do in medicine? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Full stop. <laughs> some, some of my students that come through, they, they say something along the lines of, well, when I started, I kind of thought this maybe, but then every rotation I have, it's sort of like, that's what I want to do now. Yeah. And, and, and some people have a really tough time picking from a lot of things they really love. I'm guessing that describes you yeah. more than somebody who's having a tough time finding what they like. Yeah. When I first started medical school, I was sure that it was pediatrics or bust. Um, but then every rotation's been so awesome that I'm like, and I haven't had my pediatrics rotation yet. So there's a good chance that I will do that and then say, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. But so far, I've just been blown away by every rotation. I've learned so much, and they've just been so cool. I'm so glad to hear that. Hopefully, this didn't break the trend. No, it did not. You're, you're kind of on the hot seat there, so <laughs> <laughs> good answer. You still have an evaluation to do. Yeah. <laughs> not exactly. All right, so uh, Giovanni. Yeah, Gio, Gio sure. Uh, Third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. Good to have you back. And Stephen, also from Rocky Vista University, third year. Thanks for being here, guys. So, um, Valentina, I... I'm not as ready for this podcast as I have been for others. Busy week. We were trying to get a lot done, and I think you're ready to kind of carry the load today. I got it. Where (laughs) where are we starting? We're starting with depression. Yeah. So um, I'm going to first have Gio top us off with some high-yield board facts so that we can get those out of the way and get to the good stuff. Seems (laughs) Seems appropriate after coming off of that high that now we talk about the lows, and so... Always you got to look out for your SIGI caps. So that stands for sleep, interest, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor function changes, and suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. So you have to have... Oh, were you going to say something? I was just going to ask you how many you need to have. you got to have <laughs> five, but um, one of them has to be like a persistent depression or anhedonia for at least two weeks or more. 
mm-hmm. and it can't be um, a cause due to medication or anything. Perfect. Good job, Gia. <laughs> I feel like I've learned so much. <laughs> well, so those are the really important things that we all need to know for boards to get the questions right. Mm-hmm. But then I'm kind of going to go into uh, some of the things that I got really interested from when I was pretty young, if that's okay with you, Dr. Randy. Absolutely. I, I want to... <laughs> I do want to go back and set the table just a little bit, if I can. Mm-hmm. We just had this uh, amazing podcast with your mother, Dr. Casaccia. Mm-hmm. I, I know I'm not saying that very quite good. right, no, but I'm trying my well. best. Um, who talked about myelin, and you told this really great story a few minutes ago. Would you mind telling that story again about asking your mom to read to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when I was a little kid, like a lot of little kids, I really liked having uh, my mom read stories and she would read me a story, but then I would always ask for more stories. And my mom's always had a pretty big workload. And so she was like, well, I need to finish working so I can either read you what I'm reviewing or that's it, you have to go to bed. And I was like, okay, just read me what you're reviewing. So she would read me grant reviews, article reviews. And so I think it was when I was in um, high school, all of a sudden someone asked me what a histone was. And I just went off and I was like talking about the core and the each one and I just went off and off. And then I was like, how do I know these things? And I realized that it was just somewhere in my subconscious from hearing my mom tell all those stories, read me all those papers. That's a head start for me. That's it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and speaking to the myelination, the earlier you start with myelination, the better it is. Yeah. It sounds like she might have had a head start on some of those myelination activities. Now, you also came to this rotation. We, I think it was, was it Gia? Was it you and I that set up a little bit of a prank for Valentina when she got here? Sure did. You did some research <laughs> on curcumin. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? C-U-R-C-U-M-I-N? hmm And uh, do you want to tell us just very briefly about that research? Yeah, so um, I, well, I'll, I'll get into it a bit later. But uh, basically, I just was helping on this project, and we were looking at what the effects of uh, curcumin, like turmeric, are on uh, the depressive phenotype. And we found that when you give people, when you give mice, um, 1.5% dietary curcumin, uh, that they are 4.5 times more resilient than other mice, which was pretty cool. But I just remember when Gio set me up with that, I was like, no way. How did they know to ask me about turmeric? Like, I actually know so much about this. Yeah. I remember you were just like bouncing out of your seat. I was so excited. I was like, I can, this rotation's going so great. I'm off to a great start. And, and in all fairness, you were off to a great start. Thank you. It, it, uh, it was actually a lot of fun, and I appreciated you helping with that. It seems like from that point, you've been in a number of labs. You've been associated with research looking at uh, myelin and the effects of um, different different kinds of molecules and maybe inflammatory markers and so forth. I'll, I'll stay fairly broad to mm-hmm. avoid getting in trouble. <laughs> uh, and, and that research has kind of stuck with you. It's developed yeah. some interest. Mm-hmm. Tell me how, tell me what you came across that speaks to the relationship between myelination and depression. Teach us about that. Yeah, so it started when I was in high school. I did a a summer project and I worked pipetting um, in trays for 96 well plates doing ELISAs 
for um, Georgia Hodes, and she was working with a social defeat project. And so she kind of instilled within me this love of social defeat, which is kind of a horrible thing to say, I guess, now in retrospect. I think <laughs> I love for defeating social defeat. Exactly. Like, I just thought this idea of resilience and depression was so cool. And so I, throughout most of college in the summers, and then for a year after, I worked with Dr. GLU on... Um, how to confer resilience in the face of social defeat. And so there is a pretty standardized way that we do this, which is kind of mean when you think about it. But basically there's these big white mice, they're huge and they're bred to be extremely aggressive. And we actually do a weed out criteria. So you put them in a cage with another mouse and then you time how long it takes them to attack the other mouse. And if it takes them too long, then you discard them because they're too friendly. They have to be the ones who go in the cage and right off the bat, they're like ready to rumble. Wow. Exactly. They're like the MME fighters of, of mice. And so what we do is we take for five minutes a day and there's these cute little brown mice that are just the normal mice that we do the experiments on. And we put them for five minutes a day with this aggressive mouse. And the aggressive mouse is mean and bullies him. And then we put them in sensory contact with the mouse. So it's basically like a partition with holes in it. And so the aggressive, imagine how scary that would be as a little mouse, you're just sitting there in the corner and you have the bully who just beat you up for 24 hours is just trying to get at you through these holes, right? He's, you can smell him, you can see him because they're transparent, but he can't get you. But think of how psychologically, how terrifying that is. Does this remind anybody of Star Wars where uh, that one guy was behind the plate and the glass and he couldn't get through and he's like banging it with his lightsaber and then he killed Qui-Gon Jinn. Oh, yeah. In the Phantom Menace. Yeah. Episode one. It's just like that, isn't it? Yeah. With Darth uh -huh. Maul. Who Darth Maul. Qui-Gon Jinn. So Darth Maul is a bully and Obi-Wan now has to be resilient enough to face Darth Maul. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, <laughs> I like the analogy. Okay. <laughs> That's not at all what I was thinking, but that works. <laughs> I remember being scared by Darth Maul, and I can imagine a big white rat scaring me if I were a little brown rat. Yeah, exactly. And so after 10 days of this, we do something called a social interaction test on them. And what that entails is you have this big rectangle, and you have a little box within it that's on one wall. And in that box, you put a new mouse, a new little brown mouse. And then you put the ones that have just been bullied in, a big, in the big rectangle that's around this little brown mouse. And so we have something that's designated as the interaction zone. And then you have things that are called the avoidance zones. The avoidance zones are the ones that are the furthest away from interacting with the mouse, right? Like the furthest corners. And so we notice that some of the mice who get bullied, they go, hey, look, a new mouse. I want to go be friends. And they go and they spend all the time sniffing the new mouse. And that's what a normal mouse would do. They're social creatures. If you isolate mice from each other, they get depressed. They're like humans. They like to be around each other. But some mice, after this really traumatic experience, they go, you know what? I'm done with mice. They're mean, and they go into these corners, and they hide away. And I thought it was really interesting why some mice are able to say, you know what? Let's give people another chance, and other people, and other people, right. mice, are not able to do that. And in, and in all fairness, people. Exactly. And so we decided to look at some different brain regions that we knew were involved from research like with Georgia Hodes. <laughs> and we looked at the nucleus accumbens first and then the prefrontal cortex. 
I saw that online, though. Oh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) And so in the nucleus accumbens, we found that there were changes in myelin, that for both the susceptible mice, which are the mice that went into the far corners and cowered, Mm -hmm. and the resilient mice, the ones who went and interacted, both of them had decreased myelin Mm. in the nucleus accumbens. But what was really interesting was in the prefrontal cortex, we saw differences between um, the length of these myelin-covered segments and these internodal lengths in the prefrontal cortex for only the resilient mice, but not the susceptible ones. So it seemed like maybe these changes in myelin are able to confer this resilience, this resiliency in some of these mice in this prefrontal cortex. There was also um, an increase in something called the G ratio in the susceptible mice, which I totally thought you were going to ask me a question about, of how to calculate that. Well, what's <laughs> no, a G ratio? So, <laughs> any, any calculation. <laughs> well, just because after the last calculation, I came prepared to... Uh, we're, we're staying away from uh, math in this podcast. <laughs> so this one's actually, it's a pretty simple one, but the way the G ratio is calculated is it's the radius of the inner axon over the outer myelinated axon. So the susceptible mice had an increased G ratio, which basically means that there's not a large, the denominator, which would be this myelinated axon, isn't as big because there's not as much myelination. And is that longitudinal or is that like circumferential? So that one's, yeah, that one's done by electron microscopy. So for that, we collaborated Mm -hmm. and we sent cryo, uh, cryo brains, and then they slice it in a very particular way. And it's super difficult. So for the sections that I did, we also did cryo sections and immunohistochemistry, but that's on the scale of microns like that's pretty big (laughs) but electron microscopy has a very complex preparation and there's not uh it's hard to have an uh, electron microscope at every place so luckily we have great collaborators so i'm not sure i understood the answer that so when you're looking at that is that cross section so that's um diameter then yeah so 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 you're looking at the radius of the inner axon and then i'm using hand signals which are horrible for a podcast versus the inner axon plus the myelinated segment got it yeah Um, So then I was wondering, okay, well, you have this difference in the length of the myelin, which we kind of described in the previous podcast, um, in the the length of the segment, but also in in these diameters. So what, what could be causing that? And so after some immunohistochemical staining, we found that there was an increase in NG2 um, and a decrease in CC1. And NG2 is a marker of um, like more immature oligodendrocytes versus CC1 is a marker for mature uh, myelinating oligodendrocytes. And so... So you're saying that they're immature? Yeah. So it seems like there's this change in how mature the oligodendrocytes are. So, sorry, I keep looking to the side to make eye contact with people <laughs> and then I go further from the microphone. That's why we left. Um, but so there's this change that there's not as many mature oligodendrocytes. So um, one of the reasons why that can be is because of changes, epigenetic changes. And so Dr. Liu had looked at um, this previous marker, which is H3K9 trimethyl. And that's a really big predictor of mature oligodendrocytes because when, um, when there's more methylation, it becomes more like heterochromatin and they're uh, that's the marker of a mature oligodendrocyte that's able to myelinate. So let me jump in right there. One of the things I always try to do when I'm having a podcast like this is yes. I try to go back and just very briefly make sure that I remember basic, like, histo. Yes. And just to kind of catch everybody up, 
oligodendrocytes are predominantly responsible for myelin sheaths in the CNS, Schwann cells outside the CNS, myelin inside the CNS, right? And, and the idea then, if I'm understanding where you're going, is that because these oligodendrocytes are staying in the juvenile stage, so to speak, they're not creating the same amount of myelin. The brain is not as myelinated as it would normally be. In the prefrontal cortex, correct. In the prefrontal cortex. Yes. Okay. And that's regional specific then. Yes. So these changes in CC1 and in um, NG2 are specifically in the prefrontal cortex, and they differentiate these differences between the susceptible and the resilient mice. And you were saying that, we were just comparing that when they have a lack of resilience, that's similar to a depressive state. Yes. So the, it's... It's just not, it's, they're susceptible to the stress of social defeat. I see, yeah. But, go ahead. It's just interesting, there's a study I was looking at that did MRIs and they found decreased myelination for major depressive disorder in the nucleus accumbens and in the left prefrontal cortex. In the prefrontal cortex, yeah, si Similar to mm -hmm. the social defeat. Yeah, um, and that was a big reason why the prefrontal cortex was one of the regions that we investigated. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so mice and humans. Yeah. yeah. So then we were so proud. We did a few other studies as well and put them in and we submitted it. And then the reviewers came back and they said, <laughs> hey, you know, we should do something a bit more mechanistic. And so... By the way, I read the reviewer's comments, mm -hmm. and I was very impressed that he put his name with the, that, those comments. <laughs> apparently, um, apparently, that third reviewer on the site where you submitted your e paper yeah e-life apparently you can be anonymous or not anonymous mm -hmm. but matthias um what was his last name i can't i can't remember suddenly uh, i was first of all very impressed with how how highly he spoke of the idea that you guys were looking at and then the ideas that he talked about did seem to tighten up the paper a great deal mm -hmm. but it seemed like when i looked at that i was like oh my goodness that's like this feels like it must have been an entire rewrite. How did you manage that? Well, Dr. Liu was is is amazing, and so um, at that time I had already accepted to go to medical school in Utah, which is a far distance from New York City, and so <laughs> I had MSK and renal and all these different classes and exams, and I was like. I don't know how much of this I can do. So she took over a lot for this final part of the experiment, which involves the lysolecithin injections, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a, the idea was, can you replicate, if I understood correctly, mm -hmm. can you replicate the, the myelin reduction in this specific exactly. area, being a social de defeat model leading to depression through another mechanism? Yeah. And, and in other words, saying, we think that we've found this entire pathway and we're now putting the pieces together exactly. and each step seems to yeah. be a balanced step. And then, spoiler alert, it worked. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So when giving these LPC injections, of it basically causes a demyelination in the prefrontal cortex. They're stereotactic injections. So you can either inject with saline for the control group or the LPC. And it causes this regional demyelination in the prefrontal cortex. And in the mice that had this demyelination, they had that same social avoidance behavior, which was just really cool. Because after years of working on this project, it was just nice to be like, 
yeah, and it worked. <laughs> you know. So if you want to, so. In, this is, so if you want to induce a depress depression, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's not do that in humans, okay? Yeah, I, I think that'd be great. <laughs> great. I also wouldn't want to bully with giant with giant mice. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other image that comes to my mind on the bully thing is an attending. Uh, <laughs> we yep. should check all of our myelination in our prefrontal cortexes. After this rotation, <laughs> I hope it's still the same. Yeah. So I had this background with, um, oh, we I, I had this background with myelination and depression and the effects of different inflammatory mediators. And so when we first had a lecture by um, Dr. Roundy on schizophrenia, I was right away like, well, what's going on with myelin here and mm -hmm. how is this affecting it? And so I just started looking things up. And so cool. before I start on that... What is schizophrenia? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's let's dig into all the important before board's you, material. Before you jump to schizophrenia, oh, okay. can I ask a couple of questions? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's, that crossed my mind is that sometimes we talk about uh, BDNF in the hippocampus. Is there, did you come across anything in your reading in the discussions about um, depression, social defeat, and the role that BDNF may play in, in that process? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, or maybe I did when I was writing the paper, but now two and a half years later, I'm a bit, I'm a bit rustier on it. So one of the things I really hoped to have looked up in the time that we had and I didn't get to was the role of BDNF. And I think we're gonna have BDNF show up in some other podcasts later as we try to pull together these models for how myelination may be a factor in depression and other conditions. Yeah. So. The thing I can tell you about BDNF is from in vitro work that I did on oligodendrocyte progenitor cells, we did use PDGF, BDNF, and FGF as like it's growth like factors to make them differentiate. Juice it up and make it go. Yeah, and right. that was, those were good metrics to check, you know, if you use those versus you don't and different kinds of effects. But I, I don't know for depression specifically, I'm sorry. Another, no, it's so amazing what you've come to. So, so schizophrenia. Yes, so it's Stephen's time to shine. We're going <laughs> to talk about just a few quick ideas that we haven't addressed before. Usually we talk about positive, negative symptoms. One month, six months has yeah. been cutoffs. But we're going to talk about something a little different with you today, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, real quickly, the re redo the criteria of schizophrenia on the DSM-5. Uh, you need two or more of the following for at least one month for schizophrenia, which is delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech or thinking, which which you can only tell if they have disorganized thinking by kind of how they speak. Uh, grossly disorganized uh, behavior or catatonic behavior. And then last, uh, negative symptoms. Um, the way I remember that is like as if you're in a high school, you're walking down a hall of deli sandwiches. A hall being hallucinations, deli being the delusions, and sandwiches being spelt wrong for disorganized speech. <laughs> And then you see a cat on the floor that's weirdly moving around. That's for cat atonic behavior. And then you have a big list of <laughs> of negative, negative a big note on the wall. It has all these negatives and like A minuses, minus for for uh, negative symptoms. And the A's are anhedonia, flat affect, affect. How do you say that? I always say affect. it wrong. Affect. affect, affect. It sounds like uh, alogia. And evolution and attention. 
which is all poor. Anyways, there's a new mnemonic for you all. I was wondering what this was. I know, right? So, it's a funny so drawing, you, isn't it? Did you make that up? I did make that up. You didn't find that in Sketch or nope, something then? Nope. No, and he made a little drawing for it in his notes, I wish too. you could see it. I, I'll post it if you guys want. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't look at my images. Wow, they're posts all over. All right, you came across a principle that was tested recently that yes. you want to remind us of. Four pathways yeah, that um, are often involved in schizophrenia. Yeah, this, these are actually important to know. I I tipped over them the first time I went around and I took my test or a couple questions on it and I was like, I missed this one. Dang it. <laughs> so there are four dopamine pathways that you have got to know if you don't want to feel like an idiot like me. Uh, first is the prefrontal wow. cortical pathway. Okay, hold hold on. <laughs> my self-deprecating too much. Sometimes I have a tough time remembering all the pathways <laughs> all the time. Or just like yeah. We're gonna do therapy after this podcast. <laughs> Funny. Sorry, the humor is my defense mechanism. It's a mature <laughs> defense mechanism, so I can defend myself with that. <laughs> That's also high yield for boards. It is. <laughs> Dr. Randy, you okay? Barely. <laughs> All right, so the four dopamine pathways um, that you've got to remember are the prefrontal cortical, which is also called the mesocortical pathway. There's the mesolimbic um, the tubero-infundibular, and the nigrostriatal. So the mesocortical pathway is the one that's affected, um, down-regulated basically for the dopamine pathway, and it's responsible for the negative symptoms. And interestingly enough, the mesolimbic is overactivated, and so it's responsible for the positive symptoms. Which is one of the reasons why we, when we talk about antipsychotic medications that are the traditional first-generation dopamine blockers uh, that don't have the serotonin-2 receptor activity. We think about tamping down on those other pathways even more so. Mm -hmm. So even though we're tamping down on this mesolimbic pathway to make it so there's less hallucinations and delusions, yeah. the consequence of that may also be worsening the mesocortical pathway yeah. and uh, causing some problems with uh, motivation and so forth, right? Yeah, those negative symptoms are really hard to get rid of. They are. And because the positive ones are, in my opinion, much worse than the negative ones, in my humble opinion. It looks like maybe, maybe. negative opinions okay. predict outcome of illness more, though. Mm -hmm. Negative symptoms predict yeah. outcomes, yes. Yeah, and the worse the negative symptoms. better outcomes with more intense positive symptoms at first, right? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. What I think I know, and again, this is what I think I know, I think what I know is that the worse the negative symptoms, the worse the prognosis. Yeah. And that negative symptoms have more to do with prognosis than positive symptoms. Yeah. One troubling thing also is that both of these pathways, even though they're kind of one's up, one's down, is that they both use the D2 receptor. Right. And so therefore, when you use the antipsychotics, they're affecting both of them yeah. by blocking the D2. Um, unfortunately, also, it also will affect the other two. Um, not as much, but as a side effect. The tubular infundibular, when it's blocked, will cause, who can say it? Me. Big. Hyperprolactinemia. Hyperprolactinemia. Why do you say big? Because <laughs> that's what I think of, honestly. It, I have a mnemonic brain. I, I think of a guy with breasts. Gynecomastia. It's what happens when you have high prolactin. And then... Uh, Hold on. The, the other part of that is when you see this question on the test, there does seem to, to be one molecule that is more likely to cause that than others. Uh, risperidone? Risperidone, yes. Risperidone, yeah. And perhaps, even though I'm not sure this is caught up with the test questions yet, 
an even bigger culprit is the breakdown metabolite of risperidone. Paliperidone. 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 You really like paliperidone. It's, it's a question. I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I a little pal of risperidone. Fun fact for next medical students coming to this rotation. Yeah. When yeah. in doubt, paliperidone. <laughs> it, it used to no, be clozapine. clozapine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last one is nigrostriatal, and that's the one that has the EPS. The ex, uh, oh my goodness. Extrapyramidal symptoms. Yep. Boy, that was, that was a lot of high-yield stuff crammed into just this very short area. Well done. And I will never forget the, uh, what was the hallway again? <laughs> the the Delhi? Hall of Delhi Sandwiches with a cat that's weird, moving weird. And the, and the sign with people's sign grades, with people's the, grades the, on the it. minus A quality meat on the... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hmm. All right. So uh, how does demyelination and schizophrenia play together? So in a lot of ways, actually. (laughs) You didn't think I was going to go there, right? (laughs) So um, there were a bunch of different studies that were done in um, post-mortem brains of individuals with schizophrenia. And they found that there were changes um, in myelination as well as changes in oligodendrocyte lineage cells. And so they did a few genome-wide association studies, and they found that a lot of the altered and decreased expression of certain genes were the ones that were involved with myelination. So for example, the uh, neuroregulin one, so ERB before, I think that's ERB before, that one, um, they found that that one is important for survival and differentiation of oligodendrocyte lineage, but Mute, but mice who were um, mutant mice, so knockout for NRG1, they had schizophrenia-like um, symptoms, and that those symptoms were able to be attenuated when they were given clozapine, which is fun because you love clozapine. <laughs> I think clozapine's an amazing medication. Yes. You should have seen Dr. Rowdy's eyes there. He was it's like, it's the love of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish we had better treatments than that, though. Yeah. yeah. True. Um, and then... Uh, other a bunch of other genes so nogo a receptor also the knockout mice of this had de- had impaired myelin synthesis and delayed differentiation of oligodendrocytes and they also had schizophrenia like symptoms but again this is always the it's hard to knock out a gene in a human and i would argue we should never do, never that. do that don't do that <laughs> unpopular opinion yeah. i know but um but so a lot of a lot of these are from mice uh, there's also um, a gene that you had talked to us, uh, Dr. Randy, about disrupted in schizophrenia, schizophrenia one, uh, DISC one, and that one also is actually associated with altered myelin synthesis and oligodendrocyte lineage differentiation. Mm. Um, and then there's OLIG two, which is a gene that I was very familiar with before coming into this rotation because of my previous research, and they found in patients that were post mortem. Um, that there was decreased mRNA of OLIG2 um, compared to control patients. And then the last gene that I thought was relevant was SOX10, which is um, a marker that also I was familiar with from my previous research. Um, And it's also, it's a, it's a marker of oligodendrocyte lineage and neural crest cell uh, development. And it was hypermethylated in uh, patients with schizophrenia, and hypermethylation tends to be more of an inhibitory marker. They also found, so those were all the genetic changes that I I was able to find, which is a significant amount of myelin-related genes. And then there are also structural changes in white matter tracts, 
especially in the anterior hippocampus and the connection between the hip through decreased number and morphology, I think, um, in the neurocircuitry between the hippocampus and the hypothalamus. So that tract as well was seemed to be disruptive. I had also seen in another study disruption in the left genue of the corpus callosum. Um, and so after all these changes in oligodendrocyte morphology, distribution, density, and expression of the myelin-related genes, they also found on proteomic analysis that there were different expression patterns and biochemical pathways, which is kind of similar to what we were talking about in the previous podcast about how you can change the levels of different metabolites and that it might be a big effect that oligodendrocytes are actually playing. So if you don't have as many mature oligodendrocytes, it could be changing the biochemical environment of different neurons. I was... I I was surprised, and, and I, as I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm struggling with a few things, and I'm hoping that over time I, I can understand these better, but glial cells make up somewhere between, what, 25 to 50% of the average brain. That seems like a huge range for me. They're divided into astrocytes that are then further divided and then into glial cells. The glial cells have more activity than simply the myelin sheaths, right? They're, they're, was this what your mom was telling us, two things we need to know? So, that, yeah. So glial cells is a, a large term, right? So you have microglia, which right. are like the um, immune, yeah, the macrophages, the little immune cells, you have astrocytes, and you have oligodendrocytes. Right. So what she was referring to is that oligodendrocytes also have other functions. And that's mostly at those nodes, right? The nodes of Rambier that where, or the junctions. Yeah, so she was talking about that Hebbian hypothesis that if you can dec if you can decrease or increase the speed of conduction, you can alter that neurons that fire together wire together by having them not fire together, right? Because mm -hmm. the speed of conduction changes and then that changes. Or you could be providing trophic support. You could be providing other cytokines, right? So mm -hmm. there's it's known that from a bunch of literature that I cannot cite off the top of my head that oligodendrocytes are susceptible or receptive to different like cytokines and um, different signals. It, it, I'm trying to remember if I was reading also that there are ion, ion channels in these oligodendrocytes as well. Mm -hmm. I think I was saying glial cells when I meant to say oligodendro a, mo a moment ago. Um, and, and these uh, cells, these activities near the junctions, near the nodes of Ranvier, better said, seem to have regulatory effects as well. And so, mm -hmm. so these glial cells do much more than just myelinate. Yeah. yeah, and then I think there's also so much that we just still don't understand because for so long all of neuroscience was fascinated by the neuron and then glial cells just came as a later explosion and they didn't have as many giant axons with cool names. Did we talk about giant axons once before? I think Squid. we... I think we talked about it just amongst us that I was under the impression that everyone, upon learning of Jid's giant squid. <laughs> squid giant axon, thought that there were just giant squids, but instead it's just a normal squid with a giant axon, and I thought that was very misleading as a name, and it's a way cooler image to think of just a giant squid, but... I like that. <laughs> All right. But so then Under... they had, uh, in the same way we talked about the LPC... Mm -hmm. They did a Cooperzone model. So, so let's back up very, cool. very quickly. Okay. The same way we talked about putting a chemical in the brain that destroyed my or affected myelin. Yes. 
in the prefrontal cortex, there's another, another model that you're going to describe now. Yes. So this is called the Cooper Zone model, and it's a model that kills oligodendrocyte cells. And so in that way, it decreases myelin. And what they found was, I, I did a direct quote because it's hard to remember every little thing about it. So this animal model manifests symptoms similar to those observed in schizophrenia patients, such as deficits in working memory and in PPI of the acoustic startle response, less social interaction, and higher dopamine in the prefrontal cortex, showing that OL dis uh, oligodendrocyte lineage dysfunction and abnormal myelination triggers schizophrenia-like symptoms. And I thought that was really cool to have kind of a, instead of saying, oh, you have this disease and these are the things that are changed, to say, well, if we, if we change this, we can also cause behaviors that are like this disease. And so some of the thoughts that I was having was, well, how are we going to change the way that we treat patients based off of this information? Because it's really fun to talk about all the science behind things, but what are we actually doing to change our patient care based off of the knowledge? Tell me clozapine. <laughs> so I think you might be interested in this. So they looked at some of the antipsychotics that are being used and their effects on oligodendrocytes. And so they found that olanzapine and quetiapine, which are second gen... Quetiapine. Quetiapine. Also known as Seroquel. Quetiapine. Yes. Uh, which are second gen antipsychotics. They both induce oligodendrocyte lineage proliferation, which is great. And... Quetiapine. No, say it again. Quetiapine. Quetiapine. It's so funny when you try to read something and you say it one way so many times, and then you hear an actual professional say it, and you're like, oh, man. Yeah, I've been saying just, it wrong my whole Just time. so you all know, there's, there's tremendous differences between the way that different physicians say different medication names, so don't get too worried about that. Okay. <laughs> Seroquel. Um, but so quetiapine promotes oligodendrocyte lineage differentiation through... Um, the ERK pathway, and that increases CNP and MBP, which is myelin basic protein. So it's actually causing a, a difference in effect in the amount of myelin that's being produced, not just making more of these oligodendrocytes. And in the in a, in mice treated with that Cooper zone model, that demyelination model we talked about earlier, they actually found that the white matter that was damaged in the prefrontal cortex it was that damage that was done was reduced by clozapine and haloperidol. So once again, clozapine doing great up. things. Coming to the rescue. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought that was so cool. And just showing how, which I feel like has happened a few times in the field of psychiatry, that we have one medication and then we realize, wow, who knew that this would have such a great effect on something else? And so it was just really cool to see that treatments that we're already using are having these effects and maybe in part due to that, are being successful. There are clearly differences between the medications, and I'm not sure it can be explained by effective dose, by receptor occupancy, by um, efflux out of the blood-brain barrier, by transporter molecules. I don't know mm -hmm. how it's explained, but there's so many hypotheses about why one dopamine antagonist is different than others. And what, yeah. what a great way to think about this is that gosh, maybe it's about the support cells, not just about the neurotransmission. Yeah, exactly. And and who can know? So as a as another little thing that's not super, super duper related, but I thought it was interesting that we talked in the last episode of schizophrenia that we talked about how there were these, there was this really big genetic component. And then we talked, that was about 50%. And then we talked about, and then what else? What's that other 50%? And we talked about toxoplasmosis, 
But we said, you know, here are a bunch of other things. Early THC exposure, being born in the winter slash early spring, right? Um, the effect of uh, migrancy. And so we were wondering about all these factors and how it affects it. And uh, I saw that there's uh, some of these, there's hypermethylation changes that are induced in um, with some of these risk factors, such as uh, viral infection or drug abuse in utero. Um, by the mother. I think that's self-explanatory. Yeah. Um, but so I, I just thought that was really interesting because maybe that could even be more of an explanation for it as well. Maybe it is these epigenetic changes that are altering the function of these different genes that are involved with the oligodendrocytes that affect, you know, it, I just thought it was so cool. <laughs> and, and of course that makes a lot of sense, right? Because we have this concordance of only 40 to 60% in twins, uh, in identical twins, um, monozygotic twins. So I really like the way you kind of pulled all those things together. By the way, another set of really important risk factors, high-yield test stuff for schizophrenia, True. right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. So let, let me see if I can put this together in a way that a caveman can get it. I, I often tell people I, ha I have to understand it from a caveman perspective mm -hmm. before I can go any further. Here's my caveman perspective. There might be a lot of different ways that oligodendrocytes and myelin are affected, and those effects on myelin and oligodendrocytes can explain a number of observations that we see. I think there's some asynchrony associated with schizophrenia, which gets back to uh, the hypothesis you were talking about, your mother presented. There are, uh, there have been findings of reduced white matter and I think gray matter as well. Yep. Um, there are aberrant pathways. It's not as clear to me that myelin describes aberrant pathways as much as maybe astrocytes do but still something to think about, right? Because the astrocytes, if I remember right, provide the scaffolding for neuronal growth uh, through the brain. But all of these things come together to kind of say, well, I can see why um, changes in myelin might have a smaller brain, larger ventricles, smaller white matter, smaller gray matter, uh, differences in myelination and changes in functioning. Mm -hmm. And it seems to maybe be a very good hypothesis for some of the schizophrenia we see. Yeah. And, and again, maybe a common final pathway for some of the schizophrenia we see, because there could be a lot of different exactly. genes, DISC-1, neuregulin-1, and a couple of others that you mentioned that I think are newer than I've heard before um, that could potentially lead to this among toxins and whatever else that could show up in the brain. Yeah. Is that a reasonable kind of synopsis to this? Yeah, for sure. It also seems to tie together some of the hypotheses we have about methylation of those genes, so it pulls in the GWAS studies that we've talked about, mm -hmm. um, and it pulls in some of the some of the effects of the illnesses that may cause some sort of change to the body where we cause methylation on those genes, unless transcription of, uh, of of proteins that might move the progression of oligodendrocytes from immature to more mature. Yeah. Wow, that's mouthful. <laughs> and, and more, and I know that's a very, very caveman synopsis, but yeah. uh, very, very cool. All right, let's. I think. Do you mind if I ask a? Th so the theory of oh, I've been, had in the back of my mind this last little bit has been for schizophrenia. It appears at fifteen in to the twenties in in people, and that's kind of a time period where methylation or uh, sorry, myelination is hitting another milestone. Boom. A milestone, mm -hmm. yeah, another boom to kind of. Uh, get you to put your head back on after your teens. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think like that's a valid theory with kind of what's coming up through these studies? So I believe I've heard things along this line, along these lines before, and I think it's something that's been thought about quite a bit. 
And one of the other proofs to this is that um, the age of onset for women seems to be later than that of men. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and I'm not entirely sure why that would correlate, but having a longer time before you have myelination may get you through a critical period. And so there's less frequency schizophrenia. So that's been one of the, the ideas that this, this myelination window is important. Okay. Um, but also I think there's some pruning uh, that might go on during the same time. And that, that's been, I think, if I remember correctly, that, that seems like it's been thrown out. Um, but absolutely, this, this seems to be one of the theories that's involved. So how, how it plays out, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wasn't familiar with a whole lot of the things that Valentina talked about, in part because, I, in, in all fairness, I really struggle with pathways, right? It took me forever to, to remember that the hippocampus was about memory. Right, and and then I finally had a little brother who taught me the five F's of the amygdala: food, fight, flight, fear, and intimacy. <laughs> that's not an F. <laughs> that's what. That's oddly what I said the first time he said something along those lines. So let's go ahead. What I want to do is go ahead and kind of pull this back in. We've talked about how myelin may play a role in depression, or at least in some forms of depression, social defeat models in the with the prefrontal cortex changes. We've talked about how oligodendrocyte um, dysfunction or incomplete function maybe could be a player in schizophrenia. We talked about high yield with depression, which is Siggy caps. We talked about some a number of high yield things with schizophrenia, including the four pathways, right, with the mesolimbic being the one that is hot. And the other ones that get uh, that are not necessarily hot, the the two that go to the uh, cortex are cooled down to start with and become worse potentially with antipsychotic medications. That prolactinemia, hyperprolactinemia, is associated with uh, paliperidone and or primarily risperidone, but um, some recent research says maybe paliperidone more. Um, and we talked about uh, treatment, how schizophrenia may be treated by antipsychotic medications and how those medications may have effects on oligodendrocytes, even though most of the test questions will focus on dopamine 2 receptors. Yeah. Does that sound like Beautiful. a huge summary of everything we talked about? It does. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's the high-yield summary, and now I want to hear your take-home point, Gio. Oh, man, my take-home point. Myelin's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, in all fairness, I think it's, uh, what, about 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon <laughs> on a rotation that my students don't expect to be here at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and Geo looks fried, but to my, be honest. Myelin is truly great. Myelin is truly great, <laughs> despite that. Stephen? Yeah, as more research comes out on myelin, try to do your best to keep yourself myelinated. <laughs> 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 I, I will take an active role in that. Stay I, hydrated and stay myelinated. I, I did yeah. want to ask your mom, Valentina, if playing video games helped increase myelination <laughs> in some part of my brain. I don't think she did a lot of studies on that, to be I, honest. I'll volunteer, I mean, as a, <laughs> as a test subject. <laughs> I was afraid to ask, but I have stayed active in, the, in that, trying to hope that I keep some myelination in important areas of the brain. <laughs> um, oh, fast board fact. Um... Multiple sclerosis, demyelinating disease, major comorbidity that's tested on boards is major depressive disorder. Yeah. And that ties back into, hopefully this podcast will help that stick, if anything else. <laughs> you also had a couple of other high-yield facts about, uh, about um, MS. MS that you were going to throw Oh, from, from the last podcast. Young female is generally in the STEM with um, optic neuritis as the first symptom a lot of times, especially in board questions. 
with IgG oligoclonal bands in the CSF and with um, periventricular lesions or uh, just the way it's diagnosed is lesions that are separated in space and time on gadolinium uh, MRI. Good. Does yeah. transverse myelitis also show up as a symptom with those, or is that usually a different diagnosis? I, when I was going through, I know that there was a lot of discussion about whether it was a precursor symptom to MS or not. I thought that's what I heard. It I could be, but I haven't heard it. I haven't that's heard it for important. boards. Okay. Thank you, that's bringing that up. I have to look that up. <laughs> Uh-oh. Hopefully I don't lead you guys down the wrong pathway. <laughs> um, ignore that last comment, right? <laughs> Anything else, uh, Valentina? By the way, thank you again for getting your mother involved in the podcast. Oh, of course. Thank I you it was for great. developing <laughs> this podcast. Okay. Very well done, and a topic that I needed to be dragged into a little bit because I'm afraid of neuronal pathways, right? Yeah. Okay. I think so. you did a great job. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I think you did a great job. Thank okay. you, Valentina. All right, guys, uh, on that note, thank you so much, and team out. Team, team out. out. <laughs>